0: Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Respiratory Medicine. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today we'll be talking about the current state of research into idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, a major feature of our new issue. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Simon Hart. Dr. Hart, please will you introduce yourself? Uh,
1: hello, my name's Simon Hart. I'm a Senior Lecturer in Respiratory Medicine and Honorary Consultant Physician at Hull York Medical School and the Hull and East Yorkshire Hospitals Trust. I've been running the interstitial lung disease service in Hull for many years, and I'm involved in clinical and biomedical research into IPF and other interstitial lung diseases.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Hart, this issue of the Lancet Respiratory Medicine focuses on IPF, a disease that has seen significant developments in treatment options over the last few years. Please could you give us a brief overview of the disease and the advances that we've seen recently?
1: Certainly. IPF typically causes progressive breathlessness and cough in an older person and it's characterized by progressive scarring of the lungs when no cause can be identified by careful clinical assessment. Investigations, principally high-resolution CT scan of the chest and sometimes a surgical lung biopsy, reveal a pattern of fibrosis that is patchy with little associated inflammation, which is referred to as a usual interstitial pneumonia or UIP pattern. Fibrosis is progressive, leading to reduced survival and a prognosis that's worse than many cancers. International guidelines have attempted to refine the diagnosis of IPF and distinguish it from other types of progressive pulmonary fibrosi- fibrosis by listing specific criteria on the HRCT scan and lung biopsy that must be met. And along with this, diagnosis by consensus of a multidisciplinary team, typically comprising a minimum of a physician, a radiologist, and a pathologist, has become a recommended standard of care. In the last few years, two new drugs, profenadone and nintedinib, have independently been shown to slow progression of IPF, as measured by slowing of decline in forced vital capacity, a marker of lung restriction, over about one year.
0: Okay, so Dr Hart, one of the inherent barriers to effective management of IPF has been difficulties in diagnoses. Our review in our latest issue covers that in some detail. But what do you think the ideal future scenario would be for effective diagnosis of IPF? Uh, international
1: guidelines on diagnosis of IPF are currently very prescriptive, uh, requiring a high-resolution CT scan showing all of the features of a UIP pattern, which include peripheral and basal reticular shadowing, honeycombing, which is collections of small subplural cysts, and the absence of so-called inconsistent features such as ground glass change. Now, patients whose scans don't fulfill these criteria are recommended to have a surgical lung biopsy, but this is not feasible for many in whom the risk of biopsy may well outweigh the benefit. So it has been said that the strict imaging criteria in the guidelines, in fact, leads to so-called diagnostic orphans, that is, patients who may have IPF but may be denied effective intervention, such as as antifibrotic drug therapy, uh, because they don't fulfill all of the criteria. But there's a wave of opinion that the diagnostic criteria should be broadened. And in their review in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, Martinez and colleagues point out that in one set of recent clinical trials, only about one third of recruited individuals actually fulfilled the guideline criteria for definite IPF. And a post hoc analysis of that trial showed that patients with reticulation and traction, traction bronchiectasis on CT scan behaved similarly to patients with reticulation and honeycombing. It is also recognized that basal-predominant reticulation is predictive of IPF, particularly in older individuals, uh, perhaps over the age of 70. Transbronchial cryobiopsy has shown some promise as an alternative, less invasive way of sampling the lung, uh, but we need to see how it performs in head-to-head comparisons with video-assisted thoracoscopic surgical biopsy as part of a diagnostic workup. The role of multidisciplinary team diagnosis also needs to be considered because although MDTs can improve diagnostic agreement between different disciplines, that doesn't necessarily equate with better diagnostic accuracy. Furthermore, the results of a study of agreement between MDT diagnosis by Simon Walsh and colleagues published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine in 2016 suggested that in many cases a full MDT may not be needed to make an accurate diagnosis of IPF. Currently, a key question when diagnosing interstitial lung disease is whether treatment should be based on an antifibrotic strategy, as in IPF, or an anti-inflammatory strategy. Probably the best biomarker currently available for detecting inflammation in the absence of a surgical lung biopsy is bronchoscopy and bronchoalveolar lavage, where the presence of a lymphocytosis, over 30% of cells being lymphocytes, raises the suspicion of another condition such as, Non-specific interstitial pneumonia or chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. However, it's yet to be determined whether bronchoalveolar lavage differential cell count predicts response to anti-inflammatory treatment with steroids or other drugs, so this is a priority for future studies. Potential diagnostic biomarkers measured in blood have been the subject of much research, but so far have been rather disappointing in being able to predict a diagnosis of IPF. Novel lung imaging modalities, including PET-CT and functional MRI, have exciting potential and are currently under investigation. Much has been made of the need to discriminate between IPF and other fibrotic lung diseases that mimic it, for example, NSIP or chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis. The problem is that we don't understand the pathogenesis of any of these conditions very well, and for example, many lines of evidence suggest that there are more similarities than differences between NSIP and IPF, for example, which may represent different patterns of fibrosis resulting from the same insult or similar underlying disease mechanisms. Chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis is often used to describe fibrosis, sometimes in a UIP pattern, with added lymphocytic inflammation or granulometer. But in the absence of an identifiable inhaled allergen, Calling it hypersensitivity pneumonitis is, in fact, presumptuous because it makes assumptions about etiology. And, in fact, the disease often behaves rather like IPF. So summarizing, it may be less important to distinguish these conditions from IPF, especially if currently ongoing trials demonstrate that antifibrotic drugs have similar effects in all of them. We will need to wait and see. But if antifibrotic drug therapy is effective across the spectrum, Uh, then it will be less important to distinguish IPF from other causes of fibrosis. And we can draw analogies with chronic kidney disease, for example, uh, which is characterized by interstitial fibrosis in the kidney, where the principles of management are similar regardless of the underlying etiology.
0: So, Doctor, this issue of the journal presents two research papers looking at trial data for IPF treatments, which we were just talking about. The first paper by Stephen Nathan and colleagues reports metadata on the effects of perfenidone on mortality. Could you summarize the findings for us and explain how they're likely to affect a clinician's treatment plan?
1: Nathan and colleagues combine data from published randomized controlled trials comparing perfenidone and placebo in patients with IPF. Three trials uh, performed in Western patients and two from Japan. The aim was to specifically look at the effect of profanadone on mortality, since the individual studies lacked statistical power to make a judgment on what many people would regard as a very important clinical outcome. And this is exacerbated by the surprisingly low mortality in the individual trials, typically 5 to 8% of patients dying over the year of the trial. Since most of the patients recruited into these trials were followed up for a year or a little longer, data on longer-term effects still remain limited. But there were some data available up to 120 weeks. And it's encouraging that two mortality analyses demonstrated that perfenodone treatment was associated with a reduced risk of death. That was when treatment emergent mortality was measured and a similar effect was demonstrated on IPF-related deaths. Perhaps the most important outcome, though, is overall all-cause mortality. And it should be noted uh, that the difference in long-term all-cause mortality in the three Western trials, whilst showing trends in favor of perfenidone uh, did not quite reach statistical significance. But overall, these data are encouraging and should give confidence to patients and physicians when decisions are being made about commencing antifibrotic drug therapy for IPF.
0: The second IPF article in this issue is a trial of simtuzumab, uh, a lysiloxidase-like monoclonal antibody. Unfortunately, the treatment did not improve progression-free survival. Now, given these disappointing findings and the fact that the preclinical models were poorly predictive of clinical efficacy, how does this inform future trial design and clinical practice?
1: The Rainier study was a large, well-designed, randomised controlled trial of simtuzumab which is a monoclonal antibody inhibitor of lifestyle oxidase-like 2, an enzyme that cross-links extracellular collagen in maturing fibrotic tissue, given by weekly injection and compared with placebo. Disappointingly, there were no significant effects on primary or secondary endpoints. Preclinical studies in the bleomycin mouse model of pulmonary fibrosis had shown efficacy of anti-blockade of LOXOL2 in reducing fibrosis. Unfortunately, whilst the bleomycin animal model is widely used, and many would argue is the best we currently have, its predictive value for efficacy in humans is extremely poor. Literally hundreds of interventions have been reported to reduce bleomycin-induced fibrosis in rodents, but have failed to translate into providing effective drugs in the clinic. Key reason for its failure is that in the bleomycin model, there is intense acute inflammation initially, followed over several weeks by fibrosis, which is centered on airways and that often self-resolves. Clearly, this is most unlike real IPF, and we desperately need alternative preclinical models to test promising new drugs, but also to reject ineffective strategies at an earlier stage. The Rainier trial also lacked prior robust pharmacodynamic data to demonstrate binding of the antibody and inhibition of its target in the lung interstitium. This is an important lesson for future studies to reduce the risk of negative trials. Finally, development of therapeutic biomarkers is a topic of great interest because the idea that a measurement made in blood, lung tissue, or non-invasively on imaging could help identify those patients with IPF who may respond best to a certain treatment, allowing targeted or personalized therapy. Unfortunately, in Rainier, the chosen biomarker, serum Loxal 2 activity, did not predict treatment responsiveness. However, the principle of mechanism-based biomarkers is sound, and biomarker-stratified clinical studies will be the way forward in the future.
0: The key question then, Doctor, is at what endpoints should be considered meaningful of clinical activity in patients with IPF in the real world?
1: That's a good question. It will not be feasible to design future studies to show an effect on mortality, especially since there will be diminishing returns with patients already established on existing antifibrotic drug therapy. The currently favoured primary endpoint is decline in forced vital capacity, but this is fraught with difficulty, due to the imprecision of measurement and the need for trials over a long period of time. So the development and validation of novel biomarkers is going to be especially important to enrich studies with patients who are most likely to benefit. It is also important that we don't just focus on disease modification and lung function, but also address what's meaningful to patients, namely their symptoms of refractory breathlessness or cough. In fact, neither of the licensed antifibrotic drugs has demonstrated an effect on symptoms in IPF, although this may be due to the imprecision in measuring breathlessness and quality of life. But future studies will need to focus on these important aspects, and indeed several exploratory studies are ongoing. Cough is a difficult and neglected symptom, but there are well-validated ways of measuring it, and there has been some promising early data of novel approaches to cough in IPF. And finally, assessment of palliative care needs with a focus on psychological and spiritual as well as physical functioning is an area where more research is very much needed.
0: Uh, Finally then, Doctor, in this issue we also present a review from Christopher King and Stephen Nathan on the comorbidities associated with IPF. What what are the major comorbidities seen and how best can patients with multiple conditions be managed?
1: Well, this review highlights that comorbid conditions are common in patients with IPF and include emphysema, pulmonary hypertension, lung cancer, coronary heart disease, and venous thromboembolism. It is well established that the presence of pulmonary arterial hypertension in IPF is associated with increased short-term mortality, worse symptoms, and poorer quality of life. It is important to look for other comorbidities that may contribute to pulmonary hypertension that are potentially treatable, such as left heart failure, pulmonary embolic disease, or obstructive sleep apnea. In pulmonary hypertension that's truly secondary to IPF, specific treatment with pulmonary vasodilators is not recommended, since studies have shown that they are ineffective or even harmful, possibly by increasing pulmonary blood flow to fibrotic regions of the lungs. The coexistence of emphysema and pulmonary fibrosis is well recognized, and the the term combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema has been coined to describe it upper lobe emphysema and lower lobe fibrosis combine to cause disabling breathlessness, desaturation on exercise, often with well-preserved spirometry and lung volumes, but markedly reduced diffusing capacity for carbon monoxide. If the pattern of fibrosis is that of UIP stroke IPF, then antifibrotic drugs are probably as effective as in pure IPF. One problem is that the preserved force vital capacity in these patients means that the use of antifibrotic drugs uh, is often not approved in the UK or in several other countries. Many studies have confirmed uh, an association between IPF and gastroesophageal reflux, the latter measured by physiological testing or seen as a hiatus hernia on imaging. But it's important to realize that uh, reflux does not equate with gastric acid, and that it's possible to have a weakly acidic or non-acidic reflux that can cause particularly respiratory symptoms, including cough. So many patients with IPF will have a cough and there is often a reflux etiology contributing to it. Perhaps the most definitive investigation is high-resolution esophageal manometry, but not all patients undergo this. The effect of anti-reflux therapy, predominantly acid suppression with a proton pump inhibitor, has been looked at uh, retrospectively from the results of several studies. And the results are rather contradictory And the role of acid suppression is currently unknown, but it is recommended in current international guidelines. A reasonable treatment approach to the patient uh, with IPF would be to suppress acid if they have esophageal symptoms of reflux, such as heartburn or indigestion. Uh, To be aware of non-acid reflux, which may present uh, predominantly with a cough, and if there are suggestive symptoms, uh, perhaps motility agents, such as metoclopramide, uh, could be tried. The role of anti-reflux surgery, such as Nissen fund application is unknown, uh, but is currently uh, being trialled in uh, the US.
0: Dr. Hart, thank you so much for joining us today and for walking us through the January issue of the Lancet Respiratory Medicine. It's been a, a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks to you for listening.